0: Thanks again for coming tonight. We're going to continue through our series through the book of James. And uh, we're in chapter two, and so that's where we'll pick up tonight. But uh, let's pray together one more time before we do. Lord Jesus, thank you again for this opportunity to gather and worship you. I pray now. You would help me speak, Lord, the truth and love that your word would just be open before us. And that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would take your truth and you would apply it to our hearts. You'd help us, Lord, to think your thoughts after you and help us to live in a way that honors and pleases you in all that we do. It's Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, um, as I just mentioned, you can turn to James chapter 2 if you haven't already. And tonight we're going to talk about the sin of partiality. Sin of partiality. Partiality is sinfully treating people differently uh, on the basis of unbiblical categories. It's giving someone preferential treatment on the basis of worldly estimates of their worth, i.e. social, financial, political, standing, etc. Uh, it's giving pressure treatment to those based on external matters that in the kingdom of God really don't have that much import. And we're going to talk about that at length tonight. So let's just go ahead and dive right in in James chapter 2. Uh, so if you have a Bible and if you're able and willing, let me ask you to please stand In honor of the reading of God's Word, we're just going to read James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in... Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? The Word of God. You may be seated. I'm going to observe three things from our text this evening. Three things from our text this evening. The right principle, the wrong practice, and the root problem. The right principle, the wrong practice, and the root problem. First, the right principle, verse 1, James says, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. What well, James, what it literally says there is it says, Do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. And it's kind of like, he's kind of like saying, he's kind of like saying you, you can't hold them both at the same time. They're incompatible. Partiality and the Christian faith are incompatible. That's the principle. That's the right principle, James is saying, when it comes to holding our faith in Jesus Christ. Why is this the case? Well, if you read the Bible, it's it's pretty clear. The Bible says that all people are created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. He created them. And so we all, everyone, without exception, every person that you see, every person that is conceived is made in the image of God and therefore has the same inherent dignity and worth before him as anyone else. Taking the example of race, which is contentious everywhere, but especially right now today. Well, biblically speaking, there's one race. The human race and the various nations and ethnicities are the product of Babel, where God divided us in our evil aspirations so that we could not unite in our evil plots and destroy ourselves. Everyone is the child of Adam. Everyone is the child of Noah. Everyone has equal dignity and standing and worth before God. We're the same. And so we're the same in this positive sense, and it's also true that we're same in a different negative sense. We're all wonderfully and equally sharing God's image. We all equally and tragically live as more defiled bearers of that image. In other words, we're all equally glorious as those made in God's image, and we're all equally fallen, the Bible says. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So we're all equal as well in our sin. We can't, we can't, no one, no one can say to God, oh, I deserve that more than they did. No one, no one can say to God, I'm not like those people over there. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Kings and peasants, presidents, prime ministers, and subsistence, farmers all stand on the same plane before Jesus Christ. There is only one way to heaven. And it is not through money or fame or power or prestige. It is through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only one way to heaven. And God will not be concerned with what you had he will not be concerned with what you look like. He's greatly concerned with who you are, who you were in this life. In view of all these things, then, and all these truths that the Bible teaches, then how could we possibly show Christianity uh, partiality? How could we possibly, uh, how could we possibly, in view of Christ, Christ who took the lowest place? And wash the filthy feet of his disciples. How could we then make judgments and preferential judgments for or against others based on virtually immaterial earthly statuses. Like uh, the color of the skin or how much money that we have in the bank or how well we're dressed. That's the right principle. You cannot hold partiality in the faith of Christ at the same time. And at the end of this verse, James says... He says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It's interesting that the book of James in this entire book only mentions Jesus twice in the whole book. It's, more of a, it's much more of a practical book than a strictly theological book. But here, Jesus, uh, James does mention Jesus, and he refers to him specifically as the Lord of glory. What does it mean that Jesus is the Lord of glory? Of glory, Well, Lord of glory was a fairly common title for God in the Old Testament. And so it seems James is clearly referring to Jesus as God, the Lord of glory, that he is the sharer, the, the complete and perfect sharer of, of God's divine glory. In fact, in Revelation chapter 5, we have the living creatures... And the elders, and it says myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels. And this is what they cry out. Revelation 5.12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus is the Lord of glory. He is exalted He's at the right hand of God. There is none like him. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. His voice is like the sound of a trumpet, the crash of thunder, the the roar of many waters. The Bible says Jesus is the Lord of glory. And it it makes us ask this question then. Why would James refer to Jesus here? And why would would he refer to him as the Lord of glory in this context on partiality? Well, it might possibly be, be this. Since Jesus is the Lord of glory, then we should be very careful to ascribe to others undue glory. The greatest kings who ever lived, their glory is like a speck of dust floating in the universe of Christ's glory. No one compares to him. And when we put... Jesus Christ in his proper place, then everyone else will fall in their proper place too. Rather than us un- ascribing undue glory, partiality to others. So we have number one, the right principle. And number two, Paul give, uh, James gives us the example of wrong practice. The wrong practice. In verses two through four, James says, if a man... Wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. And a poor man uh, in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over here or you sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So what we see here is that you... We cannot hold partiality in the Christian faith at the same time. And in this example, most likely, I think, uh, James is envisioning a weekly gathering of the church. And we could speculate about this poor and rich man. You know, are they guests? Are they new believers? You know, we don't know. But they, they come into this gathering. They come into this gathering, and then what happens? What happens? Those present, they look... And they make judgments. They make evaluations. Based on what? Well, based solely on their outward appearance. Based solely on their outward appearance. They size them up. And what do they do? They take the wealthy man and place him in the place of honor. They take the poor man and place him at his feet. And we don't like to reflect on this much, but the reality is is that we do tend to size people up based on their external appearance. The color of their skin, the kind of clothes they're wearing, the way they're carrying themselves. And we will often go so far as to make judgments about that person without so much as even knowing their name. And when we make such judgments and act preferentially one over the other, especially in the church, James is talking especially in the context of the church. This is a great evil. Now in our day... You know, we, we wouldn't be so obvious about, you know, you sit here and then you sit down on the floor at my feet. Although there was a day, by the way, not too long ago, when they had separate parts of the church for different people. It wouldn't be so obvious today. But what is James's issue here? He's saying that the problem, their action is reflected, it reflects a deeper problem of what's going on in their hearts. He says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? When, when he says distinctions among yourselves most often he's just he's stating plainly what's happening they are dividing the body of Christ they are dividing the people of heaven along worldly lines they've made inappropriate distinctions among themselves over along lines that according to the Bible according to Christ have very Little to no spiritual value, things like what they wear and their socioeconomic status. You see, Paul, in Galatians 3.28, he said this. He said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. What Paul means there is he's not saying that those things cease to exist, as it were. But what he's saying is that when it comes to the church, when it comes to God's covenant, save, redeem people Those earthly things that we tend to give so much value and so much importance to, he says, those earthly distinctions that we make, they become of almost infinitesimal importance. That's what he's saying. Is that that inside the, that what God has done is that he has come and he is taking our earthly. Value structures are earthly way of thinking about things, and he turns it on its head. Those things don't matter anymore, right? These things don't matter anymore. Wealth doesn't matter anymore. The kind of car they drive, you know, how nice they're dressed, it doesn't matter anymore. Why? Why? Because the king of kings and the lord of lords died homeless and penniless. Wealth doesn't matter anymore. Not only that, but this, our standing, right? Our, the, the, our earthly standing in an ultimate sense is it's just really not that important anymore. The political office we hold, whether we're, whether we're the, in the mail room or we're the CEO, it doesn't matter anymore. Why? Because the most important person in the universe died as a criminal at the hands of the important people. In Jesus Christ, our old way of looking at things dies so that in the church, the world should be turned on its head. And this is, this is what people should see. The poor share a table with the rich. The black shares lives with the white and every other shade in between. The church is to be a place where the worldly distinctions break down and heavenly distinctions shine through. Think about it. your home, you know. You, You know, humanly speaking, earthly speaking, you might be able to... You can tell where someone's social status is, as it were, by looking at their home. But your home is of little to no value apart from the hospitality you show with it. The green in your bank account is of little to no value apart from the generosity you show with it. The hipness of your clothes is nothing without the holiness of your heart. An external beauty is nothing without the internal brightness of character. You see, God changes the way we think about things, changes the way we look at things, we look at people. We are one family of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, equally adopted into the one family of God. In Jesus Christ, we are enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's supernatural because it doesn't come natural. To see the world with eyes of eternity. When we look at somebody, when we look at someone, God should, can, will give us the capacity to see not just what's what's before us, what we see with our own two eyes. We see not just that person standing before us, but we see what that person might be like a billion years from now either a vile husk of sin because in hell God's grace has been separated for them or a being with almost near angelic glory so amazing that, it will, that your, your eyes couldn't hardly take them in. Everyone has one of two destinies. And what we will be then will last a lot longer than what we are now. So if we want to learn to see correctly we must learn to begin to see through God's eyes, and and this discussion here also touches on uh, something kind of tangential that is kind of we're talking about, and that is kind of this issue of what should we wear to church? You know, for a long time, and it's, you know. We're supposed to wear our Sunday best. And I get it. I, I, I understand that sentiment. I think for, there was a time period where dressing, very nice dressing up, was an expression of the heart that says, I want to give my best. And that's right. It's right. We should have the heart that says, I want to give God my best. But of course, if we think about it, we can't make that an absolute. Why? Because clothing is what? It's contextual. In other words, we might wear suit and ties here, but the best clothing that they have in Africa might be a long colorful robe and a matching hat. And if they wore that in here, we'd be like, What you doing? But guess what? That's their best. In other words, what's best for them isn't what's best for them. it's contextual, it's cultural. What constitutes best clothing is actual, actually cultural. It's totally relative to one's culture. And besides that, we understand from the Bible that what God cares about the most is the condition of our heart. Right? So in James's example, he gives the example of a person wearing nice clothes and a person wearing shabby clothes. And there's, they're, they're of no spiritual value. In fact, gee, uh, In fact, you know, we all know it's very possible... You know, we could come to church every day in our Sunday best and not love God. And so I I just think when it comes to this kind of thing, we just must think carefully about it, think critically about it. And we must be careful not to, we must, we must not say less than the Bible says. But we must also be careful not to say more than the Bible says. Jesus condemned people for this. Jesus warned the Pharisees. He quoted against them. Isaiah, in Matthew 59, he says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. If you take away from the Bible, you're on dangerous ground, but you're also in dangerous ground if you start adding to it. Last Sunday, last Sunday, I had a woman tell me the reason she wouldn't come to church is because she didn't have a nice dress. Now... To be totally fair, I grant that it was probably an excuse. She didn't want to come. Nevertheless, if what we wear became a hindrance to someone from learning about Christ, we should throw it out. Because clothing, it doesn't matter. I am 99% sure. We, there is no indication in the Bible whatsoever that Jesus wore different clothes on Saturday because they worshiped on Saturday. <laughs> on Saturday than on any other day. In fact, it's almost certain that he wore the same clothes every day. Right? So it's, it's, just, it's just something to think about. If, the, or if what we wear becomes a hindrance to someone, when it comes to the gospel, it's not worth it. It's just clothes. It doesn't matter. So we have the right principle, we have the wrong practice, and finally we have the root problem. Look again in verses five through seven here of James two. It says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? So, James here is just furthering this argument here against these Christians who are in some way showing partiality. And he's getting to the root of the problem. And, and it's really just what we've already been talking about. And that is, is that he's challenging, he's challenging them to rethink their assessments, their, their value structures, the way in which they look at the world. Right? The Bible says that Christians are the first fruits of heaven. The first fruits of glory. In other words, as the church, we are supposed to be the first gleaming rays of heaven shining into the dark, the dark and broken world. And when someone enters this church, they should see the worldly distinction, distinctions among God's people uh, be evaporated. In other words, it should be different in here. It should be different in here. Just, uh, just an example I mean, uh, just an example, and I, I've heard a similar example of this in, in other places, where you might have a, I don't know, a custodian who's walked with the Lord a long time, teaching a Sunday school class that has a new believer in it, who's a CEO. Why would that happen? Because we think differently here. We look at things differently here. Things should be different in here. Think about it. If a person enters the church and they see the same distinctions inside these walls as they see outside these walls, what does that tell them? It tells them Jesus Christ does, makes no difference. And that's a lie. Jesus Christ does make a difference. He makes a difference in the way we think about people, the way we see people, the way we treat people. That. What's the root problem? It's our failure to see as God sees. That's why James, he says, has not God chosen? That's what, what, is, what is James doing? He's trying to correct their thinking. He says, don't you know this? Has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? What does James mean? Well, you know, I don't think, we must be careful not to slip into some kind of reverse partiality where somehow being poor automatically is, is virtuous. It's not. It, it's not in and of itself. God doesn't love people more or less based on whether they have more or less money. But, but biblically, and I'm going to explain why, but biblically, it is clear in the whole Bible that God has a special care for the poor, that God delights to exalt the poor, the lowly, the, the societal uh, misfit or social outcast. And there's a couple reasons for this. First, let's look in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Paul says this. He says, he's talking to the church at Corinth. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose, there it is again, chose what is foolish in the world to shame the strong So it's, it's a fascinating argument that Paul uses to prove a point to the church in Corinth he says you know if, if you read first corinthians they were they were had these favorite teachers they were falling into the the Greek the Greeks loved rhetoric they loved good speeches right and they were falling in falling in behind their favorite teachers, exalting these men unduly having favorites one over the other right partiality and 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 Paul is telling them, look, those things don't matter. In fact, in fact, God, the same thing that James is saying, Paul says, God chooses the foolish to shame the strong. And God, and he tells them, he tells them, how do we know this is true? He tells the Corinthians, this is how we know it's true. Look around the room. How many of you are that smart? How many of you are that wise? How many of you are that powerful? How many of you are that wealthy? (laughs) Not many. Not many. Not many. God delights to make those who are just so sure that they got the world figured out by putting before him just about anything and everything they can. God delights to make those people, to humble them by showing them they're not quite as smart as they think they are. God chooses what is humanly speaking low and despised in the world and he makes them the greatest in his kingdom Why? To show that the only thing worth boasting in in this world is not your clothing, it's not your bank account, it's not the color of your skin, but the cross of your Christ. There's only one thing worth bragging about. And that's the cross of Jesus Christ. We're all on the same plane. Filthy sinners redeemed by amazing grace. When we see that, everything changes. When we see that we have a radical unity in the cross of Christ, then the way we think about the world is turned on its head. And there's a second reason I think God has ordered things this way. And this may surprise you a little bit, but I believe it's biblical, and it's it's related to just a principle of justice, or what we, we might call fairness. Now, it's, it's obvious if we take time to think about it. But it is God who assigns much or little to various people. It's just reality. Why were we born in America, the most prosperous nation that's ever existed on the face of planet Earth? God did it. He chose it. God's grace. God did not do that for everybody. He did It's just reality. That's the way it is. He has purposes and plans for what he does, and he appoints, he appoints to each whom he will. That's how God works, right? Remember when James and John came up to Jesus, and they said, uh, Grant, that one of us sit at your right hand and at your left, and Jesus told him, you don't know what you're asking. It's not for, it's, it's not, it's not for me to give those places out. That, those places is for whom it's appointed, All Right? That's how God works. He's God. He can do what he wants with his creatures. He is the boss, not us. But at the same time, I believe if you read the Bible, you also see this, that especially when you think about the whole scheme, the whole narrative of the Bible, God's plan was to create in humanity a society to create in his people, in the world, in the earth, a society where what? Where those who would get, who were given much would freely, generously, intentionally Give to those who had little. And in that way, they would reflect the generosity of God, and thus there would be equity in the world. 2 Corinthians 8.13, Paul says this, when he's encouraging the Corinthians to give to the poor in Jerusalem. He says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that, as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be Fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. In other words, God's brilliant, okay? He's not, and he, the world, the world exists not just so, the world, see, if you think the world exists for humans to be comfortable, you're going to be very disappointed with the world, and you can't understand it. You won't be able to understand reality. But if you understand that the world exists for God to accomplish his purposes, then the world actually makes perfect sense. If every person had the same amount, nobody could exercise generosity. It'd be unneeded. It'd be meaningless. But God has so appointed that some have more and some have less, so that those who have more would have to learn and would have to know how to exercise and to see the generosity of God towards us and to exercise and reflect that generosity of God towards other people. And, and... Jesus said, in another context, but I think the principle applies here, Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. So yes, it is true that God gives some to more and some to others. And, it's also, and this is also true, that if God has given you much and you just waste it on all yourself, and you, you get, have no care to those who have less than you, guess what? You're going to have to give an account for it. If we do that if we spend it all on ourselves rather than being conduits of God's grace, what we will find at the end is that all of our good things that we had will be just on this earth alone. There's a story about a man who that happened to. Jesus told this story or this parable in Luke chapter 16 about the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was the poor man in verse 22 that says the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. You see, the rich man still wants to treat Lazarus like a slave. He's not a poor man anymore. What does Abraham say to the rich man? But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. We're supposed to be, the Bible's, if God has given us much, then we have responsibility, the Bible says, to be rich toward God. To be rich toward God. This is how he's appointed the world so that we would know him and reflect him in this world. And finally, finally, James says that show partiality within the church to dishonor the poor is to dishonor God who has chosen him. And besides this, James says that it is absurd To fawn over the wealthy and powerful. Why? Because it is often the wealthy and powerful who have achieved their wealth by greediness. By taking advantage of the situations of others. By jumping when they saw an opportunity where they could get ahead regardless of its effects on others. It is the rich Oftentimes, who will be shrewd and oftentimes will be so miserly in the name of stewardship that they don't know how to love, don't know how to be generous to others. And this is something us to think about, because biblically speaking, I mean, it, it, reality in reality, we're wealthy, vastly wealthier than the majority of the world. How do we hold it? You know? Consider this example of the woman uh, shortly before uh, Jesus' crucifixion. And uh, she has this, she has this flask of expensive ointment. And she breaks it and anoints Jesus with it. And the disciples, what do they do? you wasted it girl you blew it you blew it what a waste right said it was worth 300 denarii a a denarius was supposed to be a day's wage for a laborer so I did the math minimum wage 515 an hour 8 hours a day for 300 days you know how much that is 12,360 dollars The lady poured $12,360 over Jesus' head. Now, I just want you to think about this for a second. We're about to have church conference. Someone stands up on new business and says, I want to take $12,360 and pour it over Jesus' head. Would it pass? What did Jesus say to the woman? You've honored me. And your name will be remembered. What you have done for me will be remembered for all generations. You see, I'm all for good stewardship. I believe in good stewardship. But sometimes in the name of stewardship, we can just be miserly. We shouldn't be lavish towards ourselves, no. But we should be lavish toward God. And lavish toward others. And extravagant, even, in our service to others. He honored her. You see, a person who loves money, you see, a person who loves money, when they, when, they, when they saw that, see, they didn't get it. They saw that, and they said, what a waste. They couldn't see that. Money's of little value to God. He owns it all. Right? They couldn't see. See, a person who loves money, they'll tip Jesus but they'll never be extravagant for him. So the right principle, the wrong practice, the root problem. What's the root problem? It's our misvaluation of reality. It's not having our minds renewed. It's not obeying Paul when he said, do not be conformed to this world. Don't think the way the world thinks, but what? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Think differently. Think God's thoughts after him. And if we do, the Bible says we won't show partiality. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for